Welcome, everyone, to the Radical Candor Podcast. I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And hello, I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor Podcast. Our friend Kim is on vacation. So today you've got Jason and I talking about what Kim calls in her amazing book, This is the first one, Radical Candor, Not Just Work, which we also encourage you to check out. But in Radical Candor, Kim calls this the problem with passion. There's so many articles and studies out there about whether or not making your job your passion is a way to never work a day in your life or a path to burnout. So Jason and I are confident we could talk about this for hours And that's not the topic of today's episode. What we want to focus on uh, to be most helpful for you all is whether or not it's a manager's job to inspire and require passion in their employees. And since Kim isn't here, we thought we would bring her in by reading a little bit from her book. So I'm going to share with you a couple of paragraphs that that I really uh, took a lot from each time I, I, I've read the book, and she's, she writes, it's a basic axiom that people do better work when they find that work meaningful. I don't disagree with this basic premise. However, bosses who take this to mean that it's their job to provide purpose tend to overstep. Insisting that people have passion for their job can place unnecessary pressure on both boss and employee. I struggled with this at Google where we were hiring people right out of college to do dull customer support work. I tried convincing them that we were funding creativity a nickel at a time. One young woman who studied philosophy in college called BS immediately. Look, the job is a little boring, she said. Let's just admit it. It's okay. Plutarch laid bricks, Spinoza ground lenses. Tedium is part of life. I loved her approach to finding meaning but it was unique to her. A slogan like Spinoza ground lenses would not have been inspiring for the broader team. Uh, Jason, should we make some t-shirts, Spinoza ground lenses? I kind of like that. Uh, But what do you think? Is it okay for your job not to be your passion? And maybe even the deeper question is, can you let your boss know that? I mean, I certainly hope so because I've had many jobs that were not, (laughs) that were not my passion. I, I, as you were saying that I was thinking of uh, polishing silverware as a server. Most of my college career, I spent waiting tables at restaurants. And I really enjoyed the time when I would sit with my colleagues before everybody got there polishing silverware. Because one of the things I worked at kind of somewhat fancy restaurants, one of the things that I knew is that uh, customer getting dirty silverware in was a sure way to get a crappy tip. Because there's this question, the natural question that occurs to a person eating at a somewhat fancy restaurant, which is if the silverware is dirty, like what, what else what is else going is on? What else is happening here? <laughs> and, you know, restaurants are not notoriously clean places to begin with. There was that part of it. But there's also the part of it that the tedium was a way for us to bond and connect. We'd talk while we were doing that work. And so it never felt like wasted time. Uh, It felt like time worth spending, even though when I zoom out and I'm like, was I passionate about polishing silverware? Like definitely not one of my passions. But I think I'm not alone. Everyone uh, from Stanford scientists to Oprah agree that your job is not always going to be, nor should it be, or uh, fulfill you. It's unrealistic for companies and managers to demand passion for a position as a job requirement. And maybe uh, as in Kim's story, is sort of besides the point, potentially. When uh, companies do this, when they insist on passion, they have a lot of employees telling them 
not what they think, but what they think the company wants to hear. Uh, sort of like, yes, I love uh, sorting sporks. <laughs> it's been my dream since I was a little kid. <laughs> when that's not actually true. Ah, uh, sporks, the final frontier. Yes, it's, well, maybe you you liked cleaning sporks, although I don't know if you had sporks so much as actual um, spoons and forks since this was a fancy dining restaurant. I, you know, it's really interesting when we think about from the perspective of the individual thinking about what their boss wants to hear, what the company wants to hear. And in, in just a moment, I think it would be helpful to think about it from the perspective of the individual contributor, the person thinking about, especially, you know, in this time post or current pandemic time, wherever we are, people thinking about looking at new jobs, following their passion. But just for a moment, let's double click on the idea of why do you think people tell their bosses they're passionate about their job when they're really not? What is underneath that? I mean, is it just as simple as they feel like that's what their boss wants to hear and otherwise they're going to lose the job? Is it because they haven't built a trusting relationship with their manager? Like, how can managers counteract that tendency? Part of this is not the fault of the manager, the company, or the person. I I think that it's like part of the zeitgeist now to like be passionate, to love what you do, to be passionate about what you do, and have that be the same thing as your job. There's a lot of messages in media beyond the, the sort of like actual relationship you have with your company that are telling you that this is the right way to to live is to have all of these things align your your love your passion and your work so there's part of it which is like it's just in the water that we're swimming in and so people come in with this thing and there's a an element of projection I know that there have been times where I have done the same thing I have projected I really love this I'm really excited about this this is what I really want to do with my life and in the back of my head there's a small voice that's like is that really what what you love. Like, I, I think, I think you might love some other things, but I think where it becomes, it, it can become toxic when there's active reinforcement of that. Like when a, when a manager, you know, I've seen many job descriptions that say, we want you to have a passion for customer service, for example. I, I don't agree with that. What I want you to, to be is excellent at customer service. Mm-hmm. There's a Japanese concept of ikigai and apologies if I don't pronounce it correctly. And I think at least a, a Western understanding of that, that I think provides a really interesting framework when we talk about passion and how that fits into thinking about your choices for employment. And there are four things it talks about. One is what you love and one is what you're good at. One is what the world needs and the other is what you can get paid for. So this idea of what you love and what you're good at, if you think of these as kind of intersecting circles, like that's that's your passion, what you love and what you're good at. That's your passion. What you're good at and what you can get paid for, that's your profession. And what the world needs and what you can get paid for, they call that your vocation. Finally, what you love and what the world needs is your mission. And so I think if you think about what you love, what you're good at, that's your passion. You may not have a passion that the world wants to pay for, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, how do you think about that, Jason? I mean, I think it's sort of unfortunate uh, that, that those those uh, circles don't overlap more often. But I, I think it's, it is a reality that there's a much smaller overlap of the three circles, what you love, what you're good at, and what people are willing to pay you for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes there have been points in my life where there is no overlap between those three circles. What I was interested in, what I was good at, and what the world was willing to pay, like they, they didn't overlap. So what were um, you doing for, for work then? And how were you pursuing your passion outside of work? There was a, a period of time where I was really, really passionate about 
building technology. I was young, and this was maybe in the sort of 90s. Maybe I was 14, 15 years old. This is about the time I started working at restaurants. And I and I would use my money to buy computer parts and build my own computer at, at home. But at the time, it, it wasn't the world that it is today. This was not a thing that people were willing to pay me to do. It, because it was new and seemed sort of magical, I think, uh, and people were struggling with it, there was this sort of expectation that because I knew more, I would just help them for free. Like I, like they were like, oh, Jason knows about computers. He can just help me fix my my problem. And it wasn't until a decade later, basically, that the world changed. I mean, the world changed in 10 years. It went from a place where this kind of skill was seen as not, as seen as sort of fringe to you know, 2001, we were having the dot-com burst, <laughs> like the, like the world changed dramatically in those 10 years. But at that time I was funding my habit of building computers by waiting tables. It's such a great story. I love learning that about you. And by the way, listeners, it was recently Jason's birthday and the team got him a hoodie that says tinkerer because he's our chief, uh, chief tinkerer. So he is still so good at this. And I apologize. We still do ask him for all the, uh, the, the go-to tech help. So that has carried with but, you. You know, it's, but you're paying me. <laughs> we are paying you. <laughs> There's that difference. The world and the world and we are paying you for that. So that is a good thing. But, you know, it's interesting because I have a very similar situation where I was very passionate about mindfulness and emotional intelligence and personal development. And I was having to lead a very compartmentalized life where I was having a day job around marketing and communications. And I was pursuing all of this mindfulness work and getting trained. And there really wasn't kind of a demand in the marketplace for what I had to offer. And so it's so exciting in the last few years that something I've been doing for really decades is now not just something that I love and that I'm good at. By the way, I had the time to get really good at it because there was a lot of practice and these things take take practice. So you can develop your passion, you can develop your expertise, and the world is now in a different place that they're willing to pay for it. So that's I'm just calling out that's interesting. We both had to kind of pursue our passion while also having jobs to, you know, put the, the literal food on the table and as well as the clean the clean spoons on the table. Uh, you know, Jason, Kim also writes, there's nothing wrong with working hard to earn a paycheck that supports the life you want to lead. That has plenty of meaning. A wise man once told me, and by Kim, me, that's Kim, only about 5% of people have a real vocation in life and they confuse the hell out of the rest of us. Trying to describe a job in lofty save the world terms is often going to make you look ridiculous. Yep. I think at some point it's okay to appreciate the work for what it is. Like, you know, going back to Kim's story about polishing lenses, like the, I I actually feel like, I I don't know if this is actually backed up by research, but my anecdotal experience is that this makes people worse at all kinds of work. There are people who loathed the polishing silverware time, for example. They saw, they were like, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to, to wait tables. And for me, I was just sort of like, but this is part of it. This is all like folding the napkin the right way, polishing the silverware. Mm-hmm. This is all part of waiting tables. And because they were like, well, this is why I'm great at relating to people. And I'm really good at like talking up the customer. So I should be out there doing this thing that I'm really great at. And I was like, but someone's got to polish the silverware or they're going to be mad at you. Like it doesn't, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like someone has to do it. And as a result, I feel like that kind of work, people, people don't do it well because they think it's beneath them. And 
on top of that, it devalues the kind of that kind of work, which I think causes people to feel ashamed for being mm. great at it, which is like a double whammy. If like you're an incredibly detail-oriented person and you notice all of these small things, and as a result, like I, I've worked with some some people like this. I mean, there are some waiters who would like go around and they would center all the uh, salt and pepper shakers and the flowers and stuff on the table. And when they were done go- walking through the room, it wasn't like an obvious change, but there was something subtly different, more pleasing about looking out across that room. And it's not the kind of thing that you would you would immediately notice, but there were those other people who were like didn't care about that work and would say like why are you doing that? No one's going to notice the difference. And so there's like literally sh- they, like they were shaming like people would sh- would try to make people feel ashamed for doing for doing these things. And I I actually think that that's destructive to the quality of work and it's destructive to people's psyches because there are lots of people who are doing work that many of us would consider boring, but they find real fulfillment and doing the work well. But the, the sort of conversation we have societally, socially, culturally, is that there's something wrong with physical labor. There's something demeaning about physical labor, like working working with your body, for example. It's such a great point. There was a, an interview for Time that Sarah Jaffe, who's a labor, labor journalist, and she wrote a, a book recently called work, work Won't Love You Back and talks about jobs from the early 20th century before passion got all intermingled with work. And and Sarah Jaffe writes, in those jobs, you didn't have to pretend to like it. If you're smiling while mining coal, I want to know what drugs you're on because that stuff is not fun. That expectation just was not there. And I think there are people that can take a lot of pride in their work and feeling like what you're doing, if you're really present with it, that you're contributing to something even larger, that you can feel just the accomplishment of whether it's putting food on the table or that I know when I've put in a full day of work, even if I'm exhausted, there's a feeling of accomplishment and I generate a lot of pride from feeling like I really pushed myself. And so, you know, Jason, I know we were, we were having some conversations, but I can't instill that in you. I think that's the important part. I can't make you feel that. Like there's no part of me as your manager or the job description that can make you feel that that's an intrinsic thing. You either feel it or you don't. And my point is like, I don't want to judge people who feel that or don't feel that. I think it's mm-hmm. great if you do, but it's also not terrible if you don't <laughs> to, to, to Kim and, and Sarah Jaffe's point. It's not like a bad thing if you don't feel that. When you feel like something's wrong with you for either feeling pride in work that others don't find particularly impressive or not feeling pride for work that people say you should feel, you should feel good right. about, it creates this weird distortion that makes everything harder. It makes it more miserable to be doing what you're doing, which is, it sucks. Well, and I think you're talking about, I mean, there's, and we talked about this in our recent podcast around performance management, around intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, I mean, and really getting alignment on, I am doing this job to earn money, to meet my family's like safety and security needs, like full stop. And having, you know, that is fine and giving ourselves permission from that. And and as you're saying, and there are all these voices that we're getting in society telling us, follow your dreams, live your passions. But there's not just voices. There's actually, when Kim talks about the measurement problem and capitalism, what is rewarded? What is actually rewarded in society? So Jason, I know you wanted to share a little bit about, you know, where do you see capitalism, especially with that idea of what the world needs and what the world will pay for? It's hard to overstate this, although people feel feel like this is a a debate. There was a, a study released recently that making Medicaid available to uh, to children 
has a huge positive return for society. That 50 years later, not only do they have fewer health problems or and disabilities and physical or health-related disabilities, they have also contributed significantly to the revenue of the of the government. And so it pays for itself and produces profit. And on top of that, it also contributed something like uh, 10 million additional sort of healthy adult life years. So like it extended people's lives. It made them healthier. This is this is repeated over and over again. It's like this this investment that we make pays off in the long run. But there's this debate about whether or not it's worth paying for these things. And this is where the, the sort of like the value and what we're willing to pay for thing get all screwed up. Like we we don't see it's hard to measure those things. And so as a result, we tend to under we tend to undervalue them. We say, why should we pay this extra money? Shouldn't we like aren't those resources better better spent elsewhere? And this is the same exact thing with work stuff. So that, that's like a, a governmental example. Same thing happens with work. This is a shame. So a, a, a concrete example of this is like, I think that sort of executive assistants are criminally underpaid. Like when I think of the best executive assistants that I've, I've worked with, I can tell you that a really good EA runs a team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more like an extra sort of appendage for the the manager. So like think about what a a CEO gets paid in an organization and what their EA likely gets paid. CEO compensation in large organizations is probably on the order of millions of dollars. I would guess that EA compensation is on the order of low hundreds of thousands of dollars in in a in a big company. And my point is the multiple of value they're contributing is not recognized by that that level of compensation. This is the problem of like what we value because if you took that person out like a really competent EA out of that team it would probably break down for some period of time like it literally would stop working yeah. but somehow we're willing to pay them a fraction of a percent of what we're paying that CEO that's like a broken relationship and that's just one example because before we got on the call you were mentioning all the other types of labor that we don't value as a society like uh, parenting, uh, for example, we don't compensate parenting, although we need kids to grow up and be productive members of society, but somehow that's uncompensated work. And there's also the sort of sexist or misogynist element of that because it's been mostly work done by women, which is a common thread. Work done by women and communities of color tend to be valued less than sort of like knowledge work or work primarily done by white men. So I, I think there's a, this distortion is related to the passion thing because there's a narrative that we've created that we should all want to achieve. There's a narrative that has was created over the last century about sort of like achievement, but it was framed in uh, from the perspective of successful, mostly white, mostly male executives. And so we're like, all of that achievement is modeled on that, and as a result, all the, the stuff we're willing to pay for is related to that sort of perspective of success and, and achievement, which means that all of this other work gets undervalued. Jason, it's it's such an important point, and I think this focus on success and achievement that's framed with almost an implicit assumption of all of these other parts of society are going to go along unacknowledged gives folks who want to pursue their passion almost a like, why can't I, I I should be able to pursue my passion, but it feels hard and it feels hard because maybe you're not able to be paid 
what you should be being paid for because society is not valuing it. Or maybe you don't have time and energy because you're taking care of a, a parent or someone with health issues, et cetera. So I think we want to really give people permission to look at the world that we're actually in right now and that not everyone is necessarily being rewarded equally for passion, achievement, success. And I think just to build on that, there was a recent piece in Harvard Business Review from several professors. We'll put it in the show notes. But they note that while passion is an important factor to consider when choosing a job, it's not the only factor. And so instead of asking ourselves things like, how can I find a job I'm passionate about? You could try asking yourself something like, how can my career be a conduit to passion? And so it gives you a chance to really honestly weigh the pros and cons of if you want to pursue your passion through work. And so there can be other follow-up questions to think about, like the types of industries you want to pursue and how do the constraints of those industries align with your goals? Like, do you want to have a family or do you want to have more free time, build wealth, work on your hobbies, travel, et cetera? So I think just understanding that passion is, is one factor when you think about your job, but not the only one in the current world that we're in. And, and, you know, my hope is that we're getting very rapidly to a different world. I mean, I just, I want to be optimistic because the fact that Jason and I had passions that weren't being remunerated that now are gives me hope that we will address societally some of these other issues that have conflated success, achievement, and passion for a, a much smaller group of the, of the population. Jason, any thoughts on that, on that idea of, you know, how can my career be a conduit to passion so it's not the only source of passion? I feel strongly that this is the conversation that managers should be having with their team members. Like, we should be curious about our team members' passions, but not so that it's to directly serve their role in the organization, but so that we can understand how people are relating to the role that they're in. And maybe there are opportunities to connect what we're doing at work to people's passion. So like best case scenario, you talk to someone and they're like, it's a one-to-one relationship, right? I'm doing the thing that I love and I'm really, really thrilled about it. And as a manager, I think like that's really helpful to know, but that is going to be that 5% of people who, and it's probably going to be sort of confusing when you run, when you run into it for everybody else at some for at some fraction of that, or like in our case, maybe you're meeting us at a time where there's no overlap between, between those things. And I believe, like my personal philosophy, and I think Kim, Kim would agree with me, is that it is of strategic importance that managers know that, that instead of trying to force people to connect their passion to their work, they get to know what people are passionate about and how and whether it is connected to work. Right. Is, like that's is, a very... now, is now the time to talk about my deep love for project management? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I guess, like, I believe the HBR article is sort of written from the perspective of a different way for individuals to relate to their careers. And what I'm saying is that I think managers can learn a lot from that Mm -hmm. and to change the kind of conversation that they're having with people because it's much healthier to have the conversation from the perspective of help me understand your passion and how the work that you're doing today relates to that or or does not. Such a great point. And, you know, I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to get a sense of how you and I have had some of those conversations, you know, that we're able to really identify the things that I love about my work that I'm, that I'm really good at, that I'm passionate about. And there are parts of the job that I am less good at and less passionate about, and they're anchored to things that are still important to me. So for example, a project that we're working on where 
um, I'm taking on the role of project management, which is not my, my greatest strength. And it enables me to do a bunch of things that I personally am passionate about, which are to work together as a team with you and Brandy to be creative, to problem solve, to storytell, to really go deeper on how does Radical Candor sort of expanding the content from manager focused for how can we encourage it for everyone. So there are elements in it, even though there's pieces of the project that are perhaps not my quote passion, but I can be motivated because it's about something much larger that is meaningful for me. Um, so that might be something that maybe there's some nuggets to take away for folks. Jason, since you're on the other side of that, the conversations we've been having, what's your take on that as my manager? I feel like something that I have learned about you, and I don't think I've articulated it precisely this way, is that you have a desire to help people, individuals sort of unlock their own sort of potential, self-awareness, self-management, this idea of like knowing yourself and helping other people know themselves. And I think there's a lovely through line between that, from that to radical candor. And so like the things that you're saying of, you know, how do we make radical candor for everyone, right? How do we make it so that everyone can sort of take advantage of what what we're learning here? That's something our clients are asking. And I I think it's something that's close to your, to your heart, right? Close to your, to your passion. And so there's like a subtle thing here, which is like, sometimes the work itself is a means to an end. And so getting better at project management is something that gives you the ability to do more of that work, to actually have the impact that you want to have in the world. Because in order to have that kind of impact, there's like a lot of steps that you need to take. And someone needs to, someone needs to like take care of those steps. If we're going to get from where we are now to sort of a a better place, someone has to take care of those things. And in our case, I think it's mostly the reason why you're taking on project management is we're a really small team. In a much larger team, I don't think it would be necessary for you to take on the project management aspects of this. There's a beauty in doing something, even if you're not thrilled about like the individual pieces Mm -hmm. of work that you have to do uh, because it is the way to have the impact or have more of the impact that, that you're passionate about. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong, but just saying, you know, cause I felt very similarly when I was at, when I was at Khan Academy, I, I was joking with you where I was sort of like, the thing I was passionate about was helping students get access to really great educational experiences that might not be available to them in their immediate environment. Like that's what, that's what got me excited. And ultimately what got me excited was to see students excited about learning. That, that was what I was passionate about. I um, was helping to make that happen. But I did a lot of project management. <laughs> like I, to, to make that happen, I did a lot of, I did a lot of people management and project management. And in fact, when I started that job, I told my mom, I said, you know, if I never manage a person again, uh, like manage a team again in my life, I'd be okay with that. No, we love, <laughs> but we would have such a, I mean, which is so interesting. That's the first time hearing it. And I have such a deep respect and such a deep appreciation for having you as a manager. I'm glad that it didn't happen selfishly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad too, because what I figured out was like, I feel like I have become a bit of a stoic um, <laughs> o- over time, which is like the problem is the way, you know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> I've learned to love more of that work, not, not project management. I feel like that's still, that's still not my bailiwick, but I feel like I've learned to love some more of that work. And 
what I realized was that fundamentally the way that change happens in the world is like individuals do interesting things collaboratively that unlock other possibilities for, for people out in the world, right? Like that's how change happens. It's sort of like Mm -hmm. one person at a time. And then those individuals collectively make change happen. I I love that. that. You know, I just want to jump in because yesterday we were working on a storyboard for kind of a module around a piece of radical candor. And there was, we were struggling with coming up with a way to tell the story and you presented one idea and then I went in a different direction and came up with a a different idea. But had you not had that one idea, like when you think about what sparks creativity, I don't know what it was about the thing that you said that got my brain to think about something else. But in that teamwork and in that collaboration, something that I could not have done on my own happened. And so I love what you're talking about with collaboration. And I, I think it does tie back to to passion and purpose and what really gives you meaning. So one of the things that I know about myself and that I think you've learned is that I thrive in a collaborative team environment. And I also really like being on a small team. So the trade-off of being on a small team is that we have to wear a lot of hats and I am needing to do project management. And it's a trade-off I am taking because I get so much joy and benefit from the excitement and of having these deep relationships and being in a small team. So I think it's just important for us to really understand that there are going to be trade-offs. And if you can do them intentionally and understanding why you're making that trade-off, it makes life a lot more fun. To just drive the point home uh, about like the work and the passion, I, I think at no point did I say to you, you should love project management because project <laughs> management, like there's a big difference between saying, hey, this is a means to an end and we need to do this effectively in order to get this result. That is not demeaning the work. I want to also point out at no point did I say project management is stupid and you shouldn't care. <laughs> we should just like pretend it doesn't need to happen, but we're begrudgingly doing project management. It's like, no, excellence in managing this project is going to make a better thing at the end. And that thing at the end is going to, has the potential to unlock the thing that we're passionate about. And so it's not like do a crappy job. Cause I do, th- I do feel like those are the extremes that people wind up going right. to. They're sort of like, it, it's okay to hate this stuff because it's a means to an end, or you should love this stuff because it's the way that you're going to get it done. It's like, no, those, it doesn't have, we don't have to make that choice. I think there's a like I said at the top, I think there's a way to be excellent at what you're doing, mm-hmm. even if you don't absolutely love or are passionate about every single step of the way. Yeah. And I think just to wrap before we move into the tips, I think as you were sharing that and, you know, it's not sort of the either or, I think there's a lot about clarity. And if we think about radical candor, the kindness and the challenge directly, one of the things I appreciate most about you is your clarity and getting more and more clear. And I think the more clear on what we see as our strengths, what we see as, you know, what we're doing, our choices, if I can be very clear on what matters to me, then the project management, I don't need to hate it. I don't need to love it. I can be clear about why I'm doing it. And that can provide me just a greater sense of peace because it gives me more agency. It's like, I see why I'm doing it. And it feels more like my choice rather than something that's being given to me. Yeah. 
I, I think the world would be just be a better place if people were having those kinds of conversations about work and very directly, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, there may be elements of this that I'm passionate about, but it's not everything. And just because I'm not passionate about it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me doing it to a high level of quality. That's not either wasted effort or a necessity. Correct. Jason, shall we move on to our tips? Let's do it. So, folks, this is our Radical Candor checklist, tips you can use to put Radical Candor into practice right away. Tip number one, if you're a manager, your job is to get to know each of your direct reports well enough so that you understand how each one derives meaning from their work. Ask them, what are they most excited about? For example, like the project that Jason and I were talking about, about this specific project or about the work you're doing together. It doesn't need to be specifically about the project. It might be what it it enables for you, what it inspires for you. Maybe it's a topic. Maybe it's a way you can relate to the world around you. But what is that one thing that gets you motivated about the work you're currently doing and build the conversation from there. If you'd like more tips about these conversations, there is some helpful content on career conversations for Russ Laraway, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Tip number two, understand that the world may not pay you for the things you're great at and that you love to do. There's nothing wrong with working hard to earn a paycheck that supports the life you want to lead. And if you decide not to pursue your passionate work, What should you look for in a job? We suggest asking yourself some things like, will this job give me the resources? In other words, the time, the money, and the energy that I need to pursue my passions. And tip number three, don't let other people's bullshit, their perspective on what you should or should not be passionate about or feel about your work, make you feel ashamed for doing work that is meaningful to you, even though it might not be meaningful to others, or make you feel ashamed because you're not feeling passionate about work that people think you should be passionate about. All right. For more tips, head over to radicalcandor.com backslash podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And also don't forget to order Kim's new book, Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, available everywhere books are sold. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.